Well, good morning. I would ask you to take your Bibles and turn them to the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 15. As you are turning there, I want to say special greeting to the mothers and grandmothers in the room. Happy Mother's Day. It's uh, quite a, a great thing to be able to honor our moms, isn't it? And we uh, praise God for the privilege that we have to uh, honor them today. Even though this is not a, uh, a biblical holiday, it's a hallmark holiday, but any chance we can to honor our moms and our dads is a good thing. It's, uh, it's one of the uh, great blessings that comes with a promise, does it not? So, what a joy. It's also a joy to see Mohan here. If you haven't had a chance to greet him, and he's got family here, so he's up there. So make sure, make sure you greet him before uh, you leave. It's good to have you here, brother. Good to see you. You know, I was thinking as as we are get ready to engage here, Luke chapter 15, and we're going to look at the whole chapter here this morning. I was thinking actually about moms as I was studying this passage, and actually an event that happened many years ago when our children were really, really small. Um, I was taking my daughter Amber to her swimming lesson. She was probably four years old, and, uh, and, and I brought her into the, to the swimming lesson place, and they, I guess it's a pool, right? <laughs> I'm working a little slow here today. Came back from teaching out in Texas this week, so if I'm kind of a little in Need a little kick in the gear here. I might need that. So just work with what I'm thinking, not with what I'm saying always here, okay? Uh, so we brought her into, uh, into the pool, and I'm sitting up in the stands just watching her do her lesson. And in front of me is this uh, uh, husband, wife, and their little probably two-year-old child who's very squirmy sitting there on these stands. And just it's, it was uncomfortable, uncomfortable for me. I can imagine what it would be like for this two-year-old. And, and, uh, and all of a sudden, the two-year-old squirms, and it's hard to explain because you don't know the place, but the bottom line is the two-year-old falls off the stands and slams right onto the cement. And it was one of those hits where you're thinking, that's bad. And the thing that was amazing about that moment was almost every mom in the place ran towards that child. I mean, like, you didn't even have to tell them. The dads kind of went, <gasps> and the mom just ran, just made a, just a beeline to the child. Now, sitting next to this family happened to be a doctor. And it was good that he was there because he had to fight off the moms. <laughs> and here's the reason why. The doctor knew this was a hard enough fall, and if you know anything about uh, medicine, you know that if somebody falls hard off a stand... Don't go and pick them up right away. Your instincts want to do that. But you need to make sure there isn't spinal damage. I mean, it was like a backwards fall. Wham! And so the doctor's like, everybody get back. And the moms are trying to pick them up. And, and, he, and, the, and the doctor's just like, can you get up on your own? And the child, you know, had that pause, you know, like before they cry. And then they let loose terror cry. And then and the child got up on their own. And it probably only took about... 10 seconds or so for that whole thing to play out. But what was amazing was talking to the moms afterwards. That seemed like an hour. We just wanted to go pick that baby up. And, you, you know, just moms are great about that, right? And that's just a gift that, that moms have is that they move towards 
the pain. Moms can tell a, a good cry from a bad cry, a pain cry from just a child being ornery. They can tell. They can tell when a child's hungry, when a child's not hungry. They know these things. God's just placed it in them. And I was thinking about moms this week and, and thinking about Mother's Day, as actually as I was thinking about this text, because this entire text is Jesus explaining to these religious leaders the heart of the Father, the heart of God. And the heart of God is to move towards people who are in crisis, not away from them. The heart of God is like the heart of those moms. The child falls, and I'm telling you, every mom made a move to that child. God's the same way. When Adam and Eve sinned, God went searching for them. He went after them. God is the one that didn't destroy Adam when Adam blamed God for the sin. Adam stood there and says, the woman you made, it's her fault. Right? Talk about offensive. But God had mercy. And then the woman was the serpent. And it was the serpent who said, yeah, it was me. <laughs> right? And what did God do? He said, I'm going to kill you, serpent. I'm going to take care of this problem. I'm going to go right to the source. You see, God moves towards the sin. Now, this is important as we've been studying in Luke, and especially as chapter 14 begins for us, and 14, 15, and 16, all are just chapters about the heart of the kingdom of God, the ethics of the kingdom of God, the, the, the real essence of who God is. And we're going to see here in chapter 15 that one of the great things about God is that he moves towards sin to resolve it. And if you don't catch that about God, you don't understand anything about God. Now, some of this might seem like, oh, yeah, it's, it's old news, and I already know that about God. But yet, it's important to really comprehend this, and I want to give you three reasons why. This, this whole thing should impact us in three ways. It should first impact us, and it should impact the way that we worship God. It should impact the way that we worship God. We must never forget what we just celebrated here at the Lord's table. That we were once your enemies, and we are now seated at your table. We should never forget that. All of our worship should be driven by the fact that once we didn't know mercy and now we know mercy. If we lose sight of that, our worship can get hard and shallow and disconnected. And most of the time, a disconnectedness from God comes from forgetting the fact that we stand in grace. And so it should impact our worship. It should also impact the way that we interpret God. Sometimes when we learn things about God, we can learn truth so much that it can have a, 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 an impact on us in a bad way. It could make us arrogant. It could make us, we could grow in our theology to such a degree that suddenly we start condemning people. They don't know what we know. They don't live, the, you know, they don't understand it the way we do. And we can begin to look down on people. And I've actually been around people who use the doctrine of grace in a way to judge people. Right? You don't believe in grace. You're a horrible person. Maybe you forgot what grace is. <laughs> right? It's just as silly as saying I hate people who don't love, right? Right? It's just that silly. Every truth of God should just be developing our mercy 
for others. And if we understand God, we have to understand he's a God of mercy. He's a God of compassion. And it should impact the way that we interpret him. And if our understanding of him is not driving us to a deeper sense of of mercy and love for him and love for others, then we haven't comprehended the truth. We've missed something huge. It should impact us a third way. It should also impact the way that we evaluate our own heart. kind of ties into what I just said. If I'm noticing that I'm not growing in love for people, then I'm missing something huge about God. Missing something huge. And so this whole passage is about understanding the heart of God. Understanding his mercy and understanding that, in contrast, the people who are religiously lost who have lost sight of that. And they've missed it, and the religion became bigger than the actual heart of God. And so I want us to see this today. We're going to see just a simple contrast in this chapter. We're going to see, first of all, just the simple reality that religion runs away. What religion does, if if you're developing a religious view of God in which you take the form of Christianity but miss its heart, it means that you will start noticing a wall of separation between you and the lost. Your mercy will not be there. You'll develop a kind of a cocoon mentality. We've got to run and hide every time the lost is around. Let's bury ourselves away and get away from them. You're going to notice that that, that becomes the heart. But you're going to see, we'll see in this passage, but the difference is that true love actually searches. True love is on a mission to go out and bring the mercy of God to people in the world so that there would be repentance. So I want you to see this today, and I'm hoping that a few things happen. That number one, that you would develop a thankful heart today, thankful for your salvation, thankful for what we studied um, here and what we celebrated in the cross. That you would also remember who God is, that he's a merciful God. You would never lose sight of that. And that you'd have a basis to evaluate your own heart towards others. What's going on in your heart towards others? So let's look at this here. Let's look at this. Religion runs away. Let's look at the first two verses. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Now, if it's your first Sunday here, we'll have to set the context here for you. Jesus, we're at the point in the gospel, in the story, where Jesus is way up in the northern part of Israel. He's making his way down to Jerusalem. So he's taking this walk, and as he's walking, there are just a lot of people, I don't know how many, hundreds probably of people, that some have left their jobs, and they're following him to Jerusalem. He's on this journey. And as he's on this journey, there's an interesting thing that's happening Tax collectors and sinners are coming along on the journey, and at night when they they rest, Jesus is celebrating with them. He's eating with them. Now, the Pharisees that are following this thing, now remember, the Pharisees were those that their whole life was centered on literally obeying the Old Testament. They wanted to literally obey it, which meant that, that of the 600 laws that there are in the Old Testament, they added several hundred more laws to make sure that they would really truly find and follow that law. So they're they're very specific about their desire to be obedient to the word. They are watching Jesus eat, and in essence, from their perspective, party with tax collectors and sinners. And this is absolutely 
throwing them for a loop. They cannot handle this. Now, let's just define who these people are. We've defined them in the past, but we'll do it again here. A tax collector. In that day, the Roman government was huge. You've got to understand how big the Roman Empire was. It was a massive empire going from basically India all the way to Great Britain. I mean, huge empire and, and, and running over several different countries. And, and to, in order to, to, to survive, they had to have a very strong military. And the way they paid for that military was taxation. Now, tax collectors were given a very interesting job. They were given a job to exact a certain amount of tax out of a region. They could add on top of that tax whatever they wanted for their own survival. So a lot of tax collectors, what would they do? They would, you know, if you, if you had the power of the government behind you and you weren't in Christ, and you were told that you could go to somebody and tell them, give you as much money as you wanted to ask, and by law they had to do it, would your flesh want to ask for a lot of money? Right? I mean, if the government said that you have to, you know, exact $100 from Mike, that's, that's going to be his tax, but you could add whatever you wanted to that, you could say to Mike, Mike, I want you to give me 1000 bucks. And if not, I'm throwing you in prison. And I had the power to do it. So these tax collectors, they are supporting this Roman army that is seeking this control over most of the world. They're a brutal army. They're an ungodly army. They're holding Israel in bondage. And here these, these Jewish people are selling out their own country to the Roman government and stealing from their own countrymen. These guys were just hated all that they did. And Jesus is hanging out with them, having a party with them, eating together. They're accepting them. The second group that's mentioned are sinners. It's an interesting title. Basically, it's the collect-all title for just your average everyday heathen. This would have just been some Jewish person who didn't follow the law. Probably the prostitutes, people who were involved in all kinds of debauchery, People just, you know, just living for the world. They were the partiers. Now, these people are drawing near to Jesus. Something's happening in their life, which is causing Jesus to eat with them and to celebrate with them. And you notice the Pharisees and the scribes, a sect of people who followed the Bible literally said, you know what? Bad company corrupts good morals. How in the world could this guy call himself the Messiah and do this. So here's our problem. Now we have to understand something about the Pharisees. Here's how they defined holiness. The Pharisees defined holiness by the sin and the sinners you ran away from. And that, that appears holy, doesn't it? Right? I mean, you, I don't want to sit there and tell my children, hey, go run after sin and sinners. So they would define holiness that way. They would say, I am holy because I don't do all of these things. I have a very disciplined lifestyle. And when a sinner walks in a room, I leave. I stay away from sin and sinners. So Jesus engaging sinners seems like he hates holiness, right? There's our problem. But as we've been studying Luke, I think we could come up with a slightly different definition of holiness that will help us understand the problem that they have. Here's the definition of holiness that, that I would come up with in light of the Gospel of Luke. Holiness could be defined as putting aside everything 
that gets in the way of living all in for the kingdom of God. Putting aside everything that gets in the way of living all in for the kingdom of God. So holiness isn't necessarily the sin and the sinners I avoid. It's actually putting aside everything that gets in the way of me saying, Jesus, I belong solely to you. Now, they weren't necessarily saying, God, I belong solely to you. They were just saying, God, I don't want to be like them. Big difference. See, the way of Jesus is different. Because holiness is not a matter of separation from sinners as it is a separation from anything in my heart that keeps me from living completely for God and his kingdom and his glory. So from their perspective, Jesus looked as if he was sinning. And from Jesus' perspective, he knew that they were not right with, the kingdom, with God and not right in the kingdom of God. So, what did they miss then? As soon as you start defining holiness as being separated from sin and sinners, then you forget you've been left here to be on a rescue mission. To go and tell people about the kingdom of God and the glory of God and the work of the cross. And so every time sinners emerge, if you have that worldview, you hide. You go bury yourself somewhere. Build up a wall uh, between you and the world so that it can't get in. Because, you see, we're not on a rescue mission. We're on a mission of separation. i got to get away. And what we do is we end up flipping Jesus' statement when he talks about the fact to Peter. And he says, listen, here's the reality. This, this message of Christ is so powerful that the gates of hell cannot defeat it. We end up saying, listen, the message is so weak that the gates of heaven have to protect it. No, the message of the kingdom is so powerful, it can transform the lives of people. We're not on, behind a gate. It's hell that's behind a gate, and the gospel is bearing through it. It's so powerful. But you see, they missed it. So they're grumbling. You see this in the text. They're murmuring. They're, they're upset. He receives sinners. He accepts them in his presence. He fellowships with them. Now, here's what Jesus is going to do. He's going to show them, you guys are separating. See, your religious beliefs have caused you to separate. But here's what he's going to do. He's going to show us the second thing we're going to see, that true love searches. Because here's what you have to catch. Jesus is not just partying with sinners to party with sinners. Jesus is not just saying, hey, I'm going to show everybody it's cool to be with me, you know, that you could be cool and not sin, right? It's not that kind of silly stuff, right? Jesus is partying with them for a reason. This is what you have to catch. This party is not just to hang out and endorse it. It's actually a result of the mission of the kingdom of God. When Jesus engages sinners and sinners receive what he says, there's repentance. And that repentance causes worship. And that's what's going on. So Jesus is going to explain all this. And he's going to show us with three parables. The key to all these parables is you have to see them all together. All three of them. The last one's the most familiar one, the prodigal son. You know that one. But really, the prodigal son has to be seen in light of the other two parables that are connected with it. And these three parables show us three things. Number one, God goes to any length to save. And then when when salvation happens, there's great rejoicing. And all of this is surrounded by grace. 
So God will go to any length to save. And when salvation happens, there's great rejoicing. And when that rejoicing happens, or all of that rejoicing and salvation is driven by grace. Now let me show these to you. Let's look at the first one. He goes to any length to save. Let's look at the first parable. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he's lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders. Now look at these words. Rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. That, of course, is a little kind of hyperbole there. He's referencing them, right? They're going through life thinking they don't need repentance. They're good. They follow the law. And he's saying, there's no joy there with you. The joy is found when a sinner repents. Now, notice the story. It's a pretty simple story. You got 100 sheep and one goes missing, you're going to go find it. In our culture today, we're used to things being disposable, right? If you lost your cell phone, you would try to find it, but you know what you would do. You'd just cancel out that account, cancel out those numbers, and get a new phone. We're just used to that kind of disposable world we live in. And that day, if you lost a sheep, man, you locked up your 99, and you went after that one, and you would go to any length to find it. And probably if you lost it and it was really seriously lost, you probably would have to carry it back because it probably had gone without food. It's probably been nicked up. It's probably caught in a thicket somewhere. So you have to carry that thing back. But when you found it, you wouldn't be all upset. You'd be like really happy. I caught my sheep back. And not only that, he's saying you'd be rejoicing. You'd be calling your friends. Probably kill them and eat the lamb afterwards. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> he wouldn't do that. Okay. I did joke and think about that in my head, though. <laughs> but I want you to stop and consider the one telling the story. Think about the one who's telling the story. Jesus. He's God. And he was in heaven, sitting on the throne, Philippians 2 tells us, receiving all the glory that comes with being God. Got all of it right there. Then the plan is to come and to set aside all the recognition of that glory and to be a man. And then to walk through earth and have people not recognize you as God and then treat you like you're an ignorant fool, like you're clueless. And then eventually they'll get so mad at you that they'll actually call you the devil. You're God and they're calling you the devil. And then not only that, they're going to begin to beat you and scourge you and cuss you out, call you all kinds of names, and then hang you on a cross. Why would he do that? To rescue. The one who's telling the story is the one who's going to great lengths. Right? He's out there searching. If you can't see this, it just grips me when I think about the passion that Jesus must have had. I, I you know, we're a visual culture, so I'd love to see him tell the story of this shepherd going to great lengths because it's him. It's him. It's who he is. And I could imagine the, the joy on his face when he tells the story of that, of that lamb being rescued. And you could imagine the emotion of that story. 
And then there he is telling this and, and saying, when, when I'm rejoicing with these people, it's because these sinners are, are repenting of their debauchery. And these prostitutes are, are just setting aside this debauched way of life. And these tax collectors are repenting of their greed and their, and, and their desire to take advantage of people. How could I not rejoice with them? How could I not rejoice? I have to do that. You would do it too, just with a sheep. Think about what I do with the very creation that I made. I formed these people, and I'm rescuing them. I have to move towards it. Just like those moms on that bleacher had to move towards that child that fell. They had to move there. Jesus has to move to redeem his sheep. But then what happens? He rejoices. Let's look at the next parable that connects. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost. Just so, just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. The first one has, there's joy in heaven. Now we have joy with angels. So it's growing. And of course, the illustration's pretty simple. We get change all the time. In that culture, coins weren't flying around as much. If you lost one, you looked for it. It's pretty simple. You have to look for it. No one would not look for a coin in that culture. No woman would not look for a coin in her own home. What's the, what's the idea? The urgency. Jesus is saying, I have to search for these people. I have to. They're lost. i got to find them. But then, what happens when she finds it? She calls together her friends and her neighbors, saying, rejoice with me. I found the coin that I lost. Now, we should understand this element. Okay? I mean, if we had lost something like that, something that valuable, we would announce it too. In fact, in our culture, we, we really get this because we announce everything that's happening in our life. Right? Why do we do that? little story about this. this. Last week, as you know, some of you know, I, was, I flew down to Texas and taught down at the school where Ron and Jen are at. And uh, I was flying down, way down south Texas, and I had a connecting flight through Dallas Fort Worth Airport. They redid the airport at Dallas. And uh, this is not a travelogue, don't worry. But they redid the airport. It's really nice that, what, you know, how, how it looks. It's a beautiful airport. And so I got off my plane, and I'm trying to figure out where my connecting flight is. Because all the numbers of the gates are like 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. But I'm at gate 43. And I can't figure out where gate 43 is. So I go up to uh, the information desk, and I say... Where's gate 43? Oh, that's in the old section that we don't use anymore. Okay? How do I get there? She's like, you see down that hallway down there? There's a giant do not enter sign. <laughs> enter. <laughs> I'm like, really? She's like, yeah, I know. It freaks a lot of people out, but just enter. I'm like, okay. There's like TSA guards there. and you know. So I'm walking like, okay. So I, I enter. I go down these steps. All there are us up escalators. Nothing's going down, but I go down these steps. And then I take this hard right, and I go down this empty hallway. I'm the only person in the hallway. And all there are are closed restaurants, like a Chili's that's been closed down, and a burger place all closed down, completely empty. 
It's just like one trail of lights in the middle of the hallway. Everything's off. And I'm like, this can't be right. So I'm just, I'm walking. I go all the way down to the end of the hallway. And in the gate area is one girl. She's just sitting there. Doesn't work for the airline, just passenger. And I say, is this where I pick up the flight to Harlingen? She goes, yeah. And I go, wow, this is either really cool or really creepy, right? Which I think made her uncomfortable. And so, <laughs> you know, <laughs> she didn't know my weird thinking, right? So then, then I got to tell you what happened. This is true. I don't know why I say this is true, as if other stories aren't. Anyways, you know, this, this just might seem unbelievable. I'm, I'm talking to her. She's sitting down. As I'm talking to her, something gets my attention directly behind, probably from me to Mike. And I look at what gets my attention. It's a rat. Not a mouse. A rat. A long tail. Rat. And it's just looking at me. It's alive. It's right there. And so I say to her, hey, I got a question for you. You afraid of mice? She goes, why, why? I'm like, just don't turn around. <laughs> and she, of course, what does she do? And then what happens? She screams and she runs, right? And the rat just stands there, right? Just, just staring at me. And she gets up on this chair and she's just having this, like, you know, freaking out. It was really freaky, to be honest with you. I think if somebody wasn't there, I would have jumped on a chair. You know, because my ego got to me. And so, so now I'm like, I don't know what to do. Like, the rat is right there. And then she's like, is it alive? Is it alive? I'm like, yeah, it's alive. It's just there, you know. And so then she, she gets the courage up. This all ties to the story. Here's where it ties, okay? She gets the courage up to get down off the chair. She picks up her cell phone gets herself down like this and gets a picture of herself and the rat. And in less than a millisecond, 600 of her friends knew about it on Facebook. She's sending it to everybody. I'm in this weird airport, there's this rat, you know. Why did she do that? And why are all of her friends interested in the rat? Why does Facebook work? I'll tell you why. Okay, here's the big turn back to the text. Ready? Why does it work? You see, God, we're created in the image of God. And the one thing about God is that God announces the things that bring joy to him. And the angels join in the joy of the Father. We are created in the image of God, and we have been created as things happen to our lives to express them back to God in praise communally. When a joy happens in our life, what happens? We express it together. We say, guess what? God provided in this way. And then we all say, this is great, and we all get excited about it, right? Now, what happens when our sinful flesh gets behind that? It turns into gossip and things like that, right? We end up using it in a bad way. But God designed 
for the glory and the truth and the miracles of, of the way that he works and operates in this world to be shared in. Here's what Jesus is telling these people. He's saying, these tax collectors are repenting. And therefore, a party has to happen. We have to worship. We have to fellowship. This is who our God is. When God saves someone, he's telling the angels about it. And the angels are going, this is incredible. And in fact, he says, this brings the most joy in heaven. More joy will occur in heaven today because there will be sinners around the world who will be repenting than there will be by the fact that I might stay away from this or, or do this or, or follow some religious rule. God is finding joy in the repentance of his creation. And so this was not Jesus just hanging out with sinners just to hang out with sinners to show, hey, you can be cool and follow Jesus. Jesus is bringing the message of, of the glory of the kingdom of God and sinners are repenting. And when these sinners repent, there's joy that happens because God designed it that way. And you've been designed to join into that and you've been designed to pass that on. And, and all that's within us, this shouldn't be used as gossip or shouldn't be used to tear people down. It shouldn't be used to rip people. It shouldn't be used to, it should always be used to bring glory to God and to bring people into that which brings joy to the Father. It's the way it all works, always. We're bringing people into the joy of the Father. And God designed it to work that way. That's why we love updates. That's why we love hearing what's going on in people's lives. But God designed that to be worship, and Jesus is using that in that way. So he goes to great lengths to save people. He rejoices greatly in the salvation, and all of this is driven by grace. Now let's look at this last story. The story of the prodigal son is really designed to bring closure to verses 1 and 2 of this chapter. Verses 1 and 2 is Jesus is eating and dining and receiving sinners, and these people are grumbling about it. First two parables are setting a context. The, man, Jesus is on a seek-and-save mission that brings joy, and now... He's going to tie it home and apply it to the Pharisees. And I would tell you this, that if you really want to understand the story of the prodigal son, do not make the story about the prodigal son. Make the story about the older brother. Because that's the point of the story. Okay, now let's look at it. Verse 11. And he said, There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the property that's coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine rose in the country, and he began to be in need. And so he went and he hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. Now, as Jesus sets up the story, you got a father, you got two sons, they would have understood this. They also would have understood the reality of this son and how horrible this younger son was. 
I believe Jesus is telling these people, listen, I know that these tax gatherers and sinners have done wretched things. I'm not endorsing their depravity. I'm saving them from it. I know how bad they are. And so what does Jesus do? He paints an ugly picture. You cannot get a guy any uglier than this. I mean, that culture would have made sense how ugly it was. Think about this. Okay, first of all, keep in mind the whole context. In that generation, a father would have passed his inheritance down to his children. The older brother would have received it, and then he would have cared for the rest of the family with it. He would have been the steward of it. And so in this case now, a younger brother comes along and says, I want a portion of the spoils now. Now, If Andrew came to me, my son, and said, Dad, I want my inheritance now, it'd be hard for me not to take it like, Dad, I wish you were dead, right? Because you only get your inheritance when you die, when the father dies. So it's a pretty offensive statement. But not only that, it's really hurting everybody. It hurts the father because you're taking part of his equity away. Hurts the older son who's supposed to get charge of this. Now this equity's taken away, which means it can't grow. So it's bad on all these fronts. Then, so the, so the son basically steals, takes from his father. Then he goes to a Gentile land and lives this completely pagan lifestyle. Does everything wrong you can imagine. A famine hits the land, and Jesus knows how to paint a good story, and so he puts the guy working in a pig farm for a Gentile boss. You just can't get any more offensive than this story. And what does he want to do? He wants to eat non-kosher food. He wants to eat pig slop. And he can't even do that. And he's got nothing. Jesus is in essence saying, I know who these people are. I know the wretchedness that's in their heart. Now, where do you think the Pharisees want this story to go? Let's whoop up on this guy. How dare he do this? He's hurt the family. He's hurt everybody. If he comes back home, man, he better get punished. Right? Justice better be served, right? I mean, this guy committed an injustice to his father. He committed an injustice to his older brother. He's hurt servants. He has, he has hurt everybody in multiple ways. And so what do the Pharisees want? They want justice. They want restitution. That's what they want. You can't accept these people until they make it right. So notice what happens. Verse 17. But when he came to himself, mark that, when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. Right, accepted him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. And put a ring on his hand, shoes on his feet. And bring the fatted calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He's lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. First thing I want you to notice is the son comes to himself. If you want to attach a doctrine to that, I'll put a doctrinal word to it. It's a doctrine of regeneration right there. God just opened his eyes. And suddenly he saw, I am worthless and you are everything. 
I'm a sinner. And I don't even deserve to be in your presence. He started the story with this guy saying, give me what is mine. And now the son's to the point saying, I deserve nothing. One of the realities of God opening a person's eyes is that they no longer demand their rights. And they begin to recognize they deserve nothing. They just stand in the presence of God, silent. So he comes home, and what does the father do? The father doesn't say to him, okay, you've come back home and you've repented. You need to now make things right. I need justice. No, he kisses them. He gives them rings. He gives them coats. Why? Jesus knows one thing. Both reconciliation and restitution was made at the cross. He's going to cover all of it. So the only thing at the point of repentance will be what? Come home. Come home. You're mine. I'm going to welcome you home with a giant party. His son is going to turn his agenda, going to follow God's agenda, or the father's agenda, and the father brings him in not as a slave, but as a son. But this isn't the end of the story. So now you've got the party. Now you've got the party. And, and the father's excited because life has been brought. He's been regenerated. He's been found. Now notice the older son. Here's the point of the story. It ties us all the way back to the beginning of the story there in verse 15. Now his older son was in the field, and he came, and he drew near to the house, and he heard music and dancing. So you can imagine that, right? The music's going. He's hearing the people just dance and stomp on the floor. It's incredible. So he says to the servant, what does this mean? Verse 27. And he said to him, your brother has come home, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. What's the heart of of the older brother? He's angry. See, he doesn't love what God loves. God loves repentance. God loves when people's hearts are right. His brother wants justice. But he was angry, and he refused to go in, right? I'll show them. I won't show up. Not like that's going to do anything. (laughs) Oh, no, stop the party. He's not coming in. He refuses to go in. I'm just sensing a kid in a temper tantrum. I'm going to hold my breath until everybody gets in my way. And his father came out and entreated him. Now notice the grace in this. His father came out and entreated him. Meaning his father did not come out and say, you legalist. father said, come on. I want you here. This is even grace to you, you religiously lost person. Right? I'm even giving you grace. Come on, I want you. He entreated him. He's begging him. But he answered his father, look, these many years I have served you and have never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, son, you are always with me. Notice the grace here. Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this brothers of yours was dead, and he's alive. He was lost. He was found. This is the heart of the Father. If you don't catch this about God, you can't understand Him. The joy of the Father is seeing people who are dead be brought back to life, seeing people who are lost become found. You don't have my heart. I'm not just interested that you can do everything I ask you to do. I'm asking you to join in my heart. 
Do you find joy in what I find joy in? My joy is driven by seeing dead people come to life, by seeing lost people find their way. The younger brother understood this about the father. He was willing to submit his whole life to the father. The older brother wanted to stand there and on his own works, on his own marriage, look at all that I've done, look at all that I've done, and you're going to treat me this way? If those words come out of your mouth, it shows that you've missed the heart of the father. God loves restoration. So Jesus is telling these guys, you're murmuring and you're angry with me, but I want to tell you this. This is not a party that's endorsing sin. This is a party that's overcoming sin. And we have to party. We have to rejoice. Heaven rejoices. The angels rejoice. The Father rejoices. And God finds more joy in this sinner standing in grace than you righteous person who feels you've earned your way to heaven. That all that you've done, you deserve such and such. Grace is what brings joy to the Father. So let me wrap this up. Put this all together here. There's three things that I have pulled from this that have challenged my own heart. Here they are. The first thing is this. Lost people matter to God. Pretty obvious point. But if lost people don't matter to me, then I am not close to the heart of God. Three times we're told there's joy in heaven when this happens. So here's what I did. I made a list of all of the lost people that I know in my life, all the people who aren't in Christ. This is just how I, I applied it. And I asked myself one question. Do those people annoy me? Or do I have mercy towards them? Do I want to withhold grace from some of those sinners in my life because of all that I've done? Or am I willing to freely give grace because truly believing the cross covered it all? And I had to work through that in my own heart. Lost people matter to God. Second application. Caring means searching. In every case, the lost thing was searched for. In the first two cases, there was an aggressive search for it. In the third case, with the, with the son, the younger son, the father's watching down the road and he sees him come. And either way, there's a search that's going on. There's a watching out for. And it got me to think, what's the Great Commission? As you go, man, make disciples of all nations. Caring means searching. It's easy for me to think of only being passive and reacting to this by saying, if God places a non-believer in my life, then I will. But realizing Jesus is on a search and rescue mission, and here's the good news, he's called us to join in on the team. It's not a passive thing. I'm going to hide, and unless God like, actually forces one in my home, I'm not doing anything about it. This is what he's doing, and if I'm going to join in with him, I've got to join in with him. And I've got to set aside whatever sins get in the way of keeping me from being all in. Thirdly, third application I drew, finding brings rejoicing. 
Those who don't search don't know the joy of the homecoming. They don't know the joy of it. And I started thinking, to enter into the joy of the Father, we talk about, you know, the joy of the Lord. I started realizing, to enter into the joy of the Lord, I've got to enter into the work of the Lord. And the work of the Lord is to make His name known and to see people be restored and made alive and found and delivered from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of light. So I began to start saying, we need to pray that God would give me eyes, heart, to join in the work that he's doing so that I might enter into the joy that he's in. And so the simple reality is, is maybe a twofold prayer that I would, could challenge you to pray. First would just be praying that God would give you eyes to see what he's doing in the world around you, in your sphere Right? Eyes to see it. And that if there's areas where you're cocooning yourself away, that you wouldn't do that. Take advantage of the opportunities God has. The good news of the gospel is the gates of hell cannot conquer it. You don't need to protect it. It's defeated Satan. We can tell people this. Second prayer. God, use me as a channel to draw people to you. Because we need to enter into the work of the king to know the joy of the king. So let's set aside whatever gets in the way of that and kind of be like those moms. When that baby fell, they all ran to the fall. Let's pray that God would give us that same heart. So join me in prayer. Father, I thank you for that heart. We celebrated it at your table here. We celebrated it together. We, we, in communion, we, we sung of the great, glorious power of the cross. And now, Father, as we gather as your children, I pray that we would live that way. Lord, deal with the self-righteousness that gets us to evaluate people around us and the sinners around us based upon ourselves and what we do, and our work, and who we are. And may we begin to start evaluating people by what you're doing. Lord, when sinners are brought into our lives that annoy us and anger us, Lord, don't, don't let us be consumed with how we feel about them. Let us be consumed with how you feel about us. Show us your eyes and your heart for the lost. Lord, it's hard with family members. It's hard with friends. It's hard with neighbors. It's, it's hard with extended acquaintances sometimes. And and so, Lord, please show us what you're doing. May we have the courage to pray every day. God, give us your heart for the lost. May we enter into your work that we might enter into your joy. Lord, use us as a channel for this mercy. And may we rejoice the power of the cross. And I pray all this in Christ's name. Amen.